0: You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast, bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers.
1: Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks. Sheena Kamal. Matthew Quick. J.T. Ellison. Walt D. Williams. Brad Ford, Corey. Dr. O. Vincent. Robin. Maugh. Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher.
0: Sherlene Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is thanks for joining me again for the author Stories podcast where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today I'm super excited to have Brian McClellan here with me today to talk about his brand new book in the Shadow of Lightning and Writing Fantasy and everything else that we can get into today. Um, if I haven't read the new book yet, uh, but at being a fan of the Powder Mage trilogy and all the subsequent, Entries into that world. I know this is going to be amazing. I'm so excited for it. Welcome to the show, Brian.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: I'm excited to have you, um, Brian. We we like to kick off the conversation with uh, with some questions to uh, to get things started. And here's a question for you: What is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller?
1: Ooh, um, man, that's tough. I I have. I, I have a sequence of events over the course of my kind of young life yeah. where I, I realized I was good at making stuff up. <laughs> um, I, I remember I in, I think it was third grade, I want to say, that I won a story contest. I wrote like this little short story that was like two pages long for a, a writing contest for the class. Yeah. And um, and my teacher loved it. She thought it was very fun. And and uh, she uh, so I won the, the, the class one and then she put it forward for the whole grade and somebody else won, you know, and I was, and I was quite bitter. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so I, I remember that was the, kind of the first time I tried writing anything myself. And um, and then, yeah, and, and I, I guess over time, um, especially once I hit high school, um i started kind of filling my my study halls with you know just you know handwritten whatever right and like the first thing that i really tried to do myself was um uh, that that was you know quote unquote original was kind of like an angels and demons sort of um, you know, multiple planes where, you know, angels with big wings were fighting these demons coming from a different plane and all that stuff. You know, very kind of derivative. I'm sure one out of every five people who've written anything <laughs> as a kid wrote something just like it. Um uh, yeah. but, uh, but I would do that in study hall in high school and, um, and yeah. And I eventually kind of realized, yeah, you know, I, I tried to kind of get more original as I went on. And, um, you know, I went through the whole elves and dwarves phase. I went through, um, I went through a period where I was doing wheel of time fan fiction. Um, and, uh, and then eventually, yeah, I kind of just eventually just realized, okay, I I don't necessarily like what I'm writing and I want to, I want to do better each time and develop and all that stuff. And, and I don't exactly know where kind of the, the switch happened, where I went, I want to be a writer. Um, It was probably in high school at some point. Um, But uh, but I I remember because my dad was my dad is a financial consultant. So, so, you know, my answer when people said, oh, what do you want to do for a living? Uh, Was, oh, I should be an accountant, you know. Yeah. Which when you're a kid, you don't realize how boring of an answer that is. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: You're thinking Scrooge McDuck just right. And 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 so like money
1: everywhere. But yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so, your money. <laughs> so so I was, I was kind of, uh, I went from there to, you know, realizing I wasn't good with numbers. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you yeah, know, that's a big barrier to that sort of career, right. Um, and, uh, and then yeah, and realizing I liked making stuff up and going from
0: there. What, what was your entry to fantasy? What, what was it that, uh, you know, some people, it's the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Some people, it's the Lord of the Rings. Uh, some people, it's Disney movies. Um, what, what was it that that opened you up to fantastical worlds and all of that?
1: Ooh, yeah, again, it was a series of things. Um, you Probably my mom reading me Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe when I was little, um, and then subsequently myself reading the sequels, right? Um, reading all the Redwall books as a kid. Um, I remember theirs. hitting. Yeah, I remember hitting sixth grade, and we were assigned The Hobbit, um, and I I loved it. And then I read all of the Lord of the Rings, and so it was definitely a progression. I think my very first like proper big modern epic fantasy. I want to say it was it was Belgarath the Sorcerer, the book Belgarath the Sorcerer, not even the Belgariad. I, I like <laughs> I, I think I had a friend give me Belgarath the Sorcerer and uh, and then I read it. And then I went back and read the Belgariad and all of that stuff um, and then realized that there was this whole modern, you know, you know quote unquote modern, you know, you know right. the 90s kind of you got all the you know, the 80s fantasy that was what, considered modern at the time. Um and so I started you know, kind of churning through all of that sort of lighthearted um, Tolkien derivative stuff and <laughs> uh, and loved it. And yeah. so, yeah, it was it was a journey, but probably started with my mom reading me those books, uh, bringing me Lion Witch in the Wardrobe. She read me and I subsequently got into all of the Arthurian tales, all of the Robin sure. Hood stuff, um, you know, kind of that British centric. Sort of a folkloreish kind of area. Yeah. It felt very fantasy to me, and I loved it all.
0: Fantasy writers ha- have, um, you know, there are certain hallmarks that 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 make fantasy the the genre that it is, and it's world building, uh, it's it's character development, it's magic systems, and there there are certain aspects of it that that wholly separate fantasy from every other genre. Um, you know, there are hallmarks that that of course, you know, connect it to other things, but there are certain things about fantasy that make it just entirely its own thing. Um some some authors start thinking uh about magic systems and then a whole world evolves around this this fantastical element of this and then a world comes up around some some people start thinking uh in I don't know this for a fact, but you, you kind of think of George R. R. Martin and think that the politics of the world really informed, you know, how uh, A Song of Ice and Fire came about. Um, what was it for for you when you started working on the Powder Mage uh, trilogy? Because, the, 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 or maybe it was just a single book to begin with. But um, what was it that that first came to you? Was it the the interesting magic system? Was it this? this world that's, that's kind of reminiscent of, uh, Napoleonic, uh, the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, what was it that, that was that first idea that then was the springboard that the rest of it came about?
1: It was, it was a couple ideas coming together, um, over the course of a very short period of time. It was only a couple of weeks. Um, I saw the film Public Enemies with Johnny okay. Depp, uh, as Don, John Dillinger robbing banks in, I think it's the 1920s. Yes. And I I remember walking out of the film and going, man, I really want to write a short story with ma- that's basically a ripoff of that. That's mages with Tommy guns robbing banks. I thought that sounds really cool. It could be really fun. And um, and I I thought about that for maybe a week, week and a half, and then kind of the next thing was my wife brought home. From the library, she brought home the um, the. I think we were still on VHSs at that point, or maybe that's what the library had. <laughs> um, she brought home the Sharps rifles collection, the the show, not the books. Yes, um, and and so that is Sean Bean, a uh, young Sean Bean, um, as a soldier in the Napoleonic Wars. Um, And I watched that. I watched the first episode. And by the time I finished the first episode, that idea of mages with Tommy guns had immediately kind of translated into mages with muskets. And I thought, okay, this is actually more what I'm used to because I can blend the Napoleonic Wars with epic fantasy, which is the genre that I love. And um, and so that that kind of happened very naturally. And and over the course of just a couple of days, I kind of developed that setting of Napoleonic epic fantasy into, okay what kind of magic are we going to look at? What's the big difference in this world? And I, you know, at the point I was really interested in military fantasy. Um, I had uh, been reading um, The Black Company and Mm, Joe Abercrombie's books and I thought, okay, let's let's go with a military bend to it. Um, you know let's let's talk about black powder as being a magical component. And you know that that kind of developed into the powder mages. And from there, I developed the world around it. And, you know, what does this changing political landscape look like with revolutions and kings kind of getting the axe literally? Um, and uh, how is this going to affect a fantasy world? and what is it gonna look like coming out the other side? Um, and that's that's basically where that came from.
0: When uh, at that time, were there many other authors that were um, doing this uh, historical um, military fantasy like that, you know, um I, it's escaping me right now, but there's a couple of other series that loosely kind of touch on, some of the same or, or similar world-building aspects, but uh, but it's kind of a relatively new thing. Um, w- was this kind of untrodden territory at the time?
1: So it depends on who you ask. <laughs> Um, I've been on panels with a couple of older epic fantasy writers, um, who always get very annoyed when I talk about being at the kind of the forefront of this flip lock fantasy um, kind of wave. And they're like, Oh, I wrote something like that back in the eighties. Um, (laughs) which is fine. You know, it, it didn't clearly, it didn't touch off something and I didn't touch off anything either. I, I just happened to be at the very forefront. Like my book, a uh, promise of blood came out like three months before the thousand names by Django Wexler. Um, right. And, and, and now you see Flintlock fantasy, you know, um, what were nine years later, Flintlock fantasy is a established right. sub genre of epic fantasy. um, and it was me and Django were kind of right at the beginning of that. And then it kind of just moved forward to become an established thing. And that was pure luck. You know, I didn't yeah. know Django. We weren't, we weren't writing, you know, collaboratively or, or knew of each other. In fact, I panicked a little when I found out <laughs> his book was coming out because I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm not original. Um, because when I pitched it, when I sold it, Honestly, I sold it off of the strength of both my agent and my editor saying, I have never seen anything like this. I love it. I want to get on this. And um, and so when it came out and I suddenly realized I wasn't that original, then, right. you know, a, a little bit of panic. But like I said, it's become an established you know, subgenre that every single book is a bit is different from the next. And um and I kind of love that, that, that yeah. it's, it's a, it's a different type of setting within a wider kind of genre of books. Right.
0: Right. It, it's um, so funny to me that, um, that, that inspiration can hit, uh, in two different places with two different people and, and not, not, not the same, but a similar inspiration. It's, it's almost, I don't know. it's, it's. it's it's this weird human connectedness of, of some sort, you know, that that uh, that things tend to be born when they're born, even if they have to be born by two different people, you know, in, in different parts of the world. It's it's fascinating when when you start thinking about how all that comes about. Yeah, it really it's crazy. is. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, speaking of kind of 80s, 90s fantasy, um, I was talking with. With Terry Brooks uh, a while back and we were talking about um, when when he first started writing the Shannara series and how that first book is a very different book than. A book that you would write today or that you could publish today you know you're you're 150 pages into that book and nothing has happened yet you know there's there's a there you you meet characters and they're you know going through you know what what their life is like but there's there's not a whole lot of instigation that happens very early in that book Mm -hmm. um and contrast that with promise of blood and literally on page 1 the the world is upending i mean you drop us right into the story and right into a major conflict and uh, and instigating uh you know thing that's happening right up front um have you have you thought much about kind of the the changing taste and and the way that people perceive the stories that you write and and how that is you know, constantly morphing and, and we're, we're having to change the way we tell stories.
1: I, I try not to think about it too much, so I don't (laughs) have a panic attack. Um, (laughs) but I, but it is something I do think about. Um, and it's, it's definitely a thing, uh, you know, like there's a couple of different facets to that. One is me personally, and one is the wider kind of way that people interact with books. Um, the wider way people interact with books. I think that, I think that we're just we're in an era where there's so much competition for for your uh, attention. You know, when I was a kid growing up in a household that didn't have television, you know, my parents, you know, we had a TV and a VHS player and I could rent things from the library or from the video store. But my parents didn't believe in, they didn't like TV. They didn't, they thought it was, you know, kind of, they thought it was hokey and a bad influence and stuff like that. So I yeah. I didn't have television. I didn't have the internet really at that point. So there was nothing to compete for my kind of attention. Uh, and so I read a ton and, um, and, and, you know, kind of where we reached a point where we now have a million things competing for our attention. Right. If you want to grab somebody, and even someone who is used to reading and is more patient and really loves digging into these things, even those people still have you know a smartphone sitting next to them. They still right. have the TV show they want to watch tonight. Um, and so I feel like you kind of have to jump in and get to the crux of the matter quickly you have to you have to snag them and bring them in quickly and and that was that was you know kind of my thoughts on getting on on starting the book with a boom i think that the i think that the execution uh originally my idea was that it was going to be either towards the middle or towards the end of the book um and and it didn't take long for me to say actually i think it's more interesting if we start the book with um the overthrow of the king and then find out what the fallout of that event is um and the consequences of that uh but but for me kind of changing that over to me personally i i do not have a very um I, I'm not a patient person. I'm not, uh, I don't have a, a, a long kind of ability to hold on to things. Even when I was a little kid, when I read an epic fantasy novel, I skimmed a lot I skimmed, you know, if I was reading, you know, Wheel of Time for instance, and there was a plot line I wasn't terribly thrilled with, I would just kind of flip to the end of that chapter, find out whatever pertinent thing had developed in the chapter and then say, "Oh, okay, I I don't care about Perrin right now, you know, his right. his plot line," you know, cuz yeah, you know, that's how Wheel of Time went, is that you know the various point of view characters would become whiny for a book or two or they'd become right. just super boring uh, and then eventually they would come back around and be my favorite character again but
0: and then during, you during to book 12 and say gosh i wish i'd have paid more attention to Perrin. yeah
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> right and, and yeah. so you know i kind of did that i would skim things and so when i wrote promise of blood i had this idea in my head of okay i want to write an epic fantasy because i do love epic fantasy but i want to leave out the stuff i normally skim um i want to pace it more like an urban fantasy I want the action to just keep going, 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 and uh, and that guy that got I, I think pretty good results. You know, promise of blood can be a little bit start and stop at times because I was yeah. still very much exploring that idea, um, and uh, and and you can see that in the reviews. I actually always love how <laughs> when you get a review uh, about something like pacing, you can have one review that says this really the pacing didn't work for me it was very kind of janky i didn't like it and then the next review is literally oh man i loved how quickly this moved i was so glad that they didn't you know dwell on all these things that you know, are boring to me yeah. um, and so so that's kind of how I, I i it was a conscious decision to say i'm i'm not interested in these long tail of You know, getting into a character's head for 50 pages before any, you know, before any action happens, or, you know, stopping the middle of the book to have a massive feast scene, right? Right. that that spends you know only a little bit of time on you know development and intrigue and is mostly describing food and describing characters being snippy to each other. Um, so so you know and 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 I some of that stuff I loved the, to read even and but but my temperament as a writer is different even than than some of those things that I enjoyed. Um, and I realized over time that I was good at keeping the pacing up. And every time I try to slow down, I'm not actually quite very good at that. I'm not good at the, you know, slow everything down and take right. some time to really massage the world. It it bores me. And so I, I move back to my normal thing.
0: So you had a a great premise, this great idea, you know, mages with Tommy guns that, that then morphs to mages with, with flintlock rifles. And, and then from there, this, this world emerges and then uh, a magic system comes out of that. And, and you've got these giant set pieces that, that are really coming together to make something very interesting. Um, But you can have an interesting world and you can have an interesting magic system, but if you don't have characters, that we care about and can lock on to, then you don't have a fully formed story. Um, Field Marshal Thomas, um, how did you land on this character to really invest in and to, to, to allow us to see the story um, through his and and other characters, but, but he, he's kind of the center point of this book. How did you land on him and, 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 and how did he come up out of all of that?
1: You know, when I was writing the book, you know, because as you mentioned, Tomás is kind of he is the center of the story. Um, And I tend to do that with my epic fantasies. I tend to have one point of view character who is kind of the driving force. Um, And then the other point of view characters, they all have their own things, their own motivations, their own um, their own kind of uh, what propels them forward in the story. But they all revolve around the central character. Sure. And so, so in the first trilogy, Tomas is that character, um, with him, I, uh, I was writing it at that age where I think a lot of kind of young people who are interested in history latch on to the, you know, now largely debunked idea of the great men of history kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I, I loved this idea of a Napoleon, a Napoleon type character, like, a maybe say a Napoleon who never lost the ideals and was corrupted by power. Um, you know, somebody who really wanted to change the world for the better. Um, and Tomas is, is someone who was from a young age was a, a, oppressed because of his sorcery yeah. and, and had to rise above that and had to, um, had to go through the system of politics and intrigue and, 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 and really excel beyond anyone else. Um, and he reached a period in his life where he, where his wife is executed by the neighboring country. And, and even though he was one of the most powerful people in his country, he couldn't get his King to do anything about it. And, and this is years before the beginning of the book. Um, and so he has, and so he, he developed as a character who has a history. I like that. I, the, the kind of the farm boy from the standard Epic fantasy kind of gets on my nerves, you know, it's a blank (laughs) slate and I understand why it works so well as a trope because young people can put themselves on this character. Right. Um, But to me as a writer, that's boring. I I want a character who is, who has a history, who has, uh, who has years of, 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 weariness. Um, and, Tomás is someone who saw victory and heartbreak and change and the lack of change and finally said, I'm fed up with this. I, and, and before the, even the book starts, he has developed a coalition of powerful people who he brings together. Um, and then overthrows the government. He, you know, and and the government, as a lot of those governments tended to be, was just the nobility. It was the king right. and their ministers and their their sor- private sorcerers. And Tomas has planned that out, and then he executes it right at the beginning of the book. Um, and uh, and I liked that idea of someone who is, who has ideals, but is older and jaded and and tired. And, and finally sees that to kind of, to make those ideals happen, you know, he's been working within the system for 40 years or something like that when the book starts. And, and he just kind of realizes that to become, to move into the modern world, he has to enact the change. He has to, he has to push the people in power out of the way, um, and uh, and in his case that, that happens very violently um <laughs> and I, you know, I i really loved that idea of someone who is a great man and far along in their career you know maybe even over you know kind of over the hill um and you know, seeing how they do that how they react to these things and and tomas i I liked his character throughout the trilogy because he doesn't lose that. You know, he, when the coup is finished, he turns to all these people that he these powerful people that he has gathered together. And he says, okay, I did my part. I'm not a governor. I'm, I don't want to be King. I don't want to be emperor. I want you guys to create a government, a good government. And I will support you. Um, and, uh, and, and we don't focus on that part because, you know, at the time I, I wasn't, Confident in kind of the writing, the political intrigue very deeply. Um, it's there, but I focus more on the military aspect throughout that trilogy. And um, and yeah, I love that.
0: By choosing to have a character like Tomas who who is is at a point in his life when the story begins where he has all of this history that is affecting how he acts and how he responds and and and, and is driving. Uh, his actions forward. Um, that is very different from the trope, like you mentioned earlier, the, the farm boy who becomes a hero. And we we see him from having almost no history um, and follow him along as he goes through trials and tribulations. Um, but having, like Tomas, a fully formed character that has been affected by so much, um, and then meeting that character at that point, and then you have the the whole series to... kind of reveal his backstory and and to really paint this picture of him fully you know through all of his experiences that you bring out um what what did you do to like before you started writing him did you did you have character sketches that you had worked on did did you know all of his history or did all of that start coming to you as you wrote the series
1: Um, I would say that, that it started coming to me as I wrote the first book, you know, by the time I moved on to books two and three, I knew who he was and I knew, um, I knew what kind of a person he was and what his history was. Um, but yeah, over the course of the first book, um, you know, promise of blood, I've mentioned this before, uh, promise of blood is a lot of me throwing shit at the wall to see what (laughs) sticks. Um, yeah. You know, creatively, I, I wrote it when I was like 24. I was very young in my kind of creative development, um, and Tomas was one of those things that really stuck for me. And uh, and so, yeah, he he's he very developed by the end of that book, and I really loved that. Um, and uh, and and I love I loved that giving him blind spots. Um, because everyone has them, even very sure. experienced older people. And for Tomas, his blind spot is his son, um, who is one of the other point of view characters, Daniel. Right. Uh, and and I really liked that development from just me saying, okay, I want a Napoleon-like character, to, to jumping into the more personal aspect that he, as someone who is very successful and driven in a public sense... His private life is non-existent. He's right. he's not affectionate towards his son. He raised his son in the military, um, and and making that kind of a very complicated um, a complicated failure in some ways on his part, um, and have him not really notice I- until later. Um, and I I don't know. I was that those it made it it made him more complex than just someone who's incredibly competent
0: when you first began uh, writing the promise of blood and and this world was was becoming alive to you, did you see the serious potential that it you know eventually um you know became did, did, could you see past the first book to to what this world grew into
1: um yeah in fact, funny enough, early pitches i was uh, this is actually a recurring thing in my uh in my career uh, privately yeah. is that i always aim way too high with new books <laughs> and new and new sequels i always yeah. have a thousand grand ideas for book 2 book 3 whatever um and uh and with promise of blood it's funny cuz the original pitch for books 2 and 3 actually looked nothing like what the books two and three we got were. Uh, It looked very much like what the following trilogy ended up being. (laughs) Um, That's so funny. Yeah, I think that the original pitch for what became the Crimson Campaign, book two, included a, a Dainese invasion and way more about Kapol and lots more development. And as I tried to write that, which... I mean, I never learn. I keep doing this to myself every time I write a new trilogy. <laughs> As I tried to write that, I realized, okay, this is way too ambitious for for what I've already set up. I need to scale back. I need to focus on the things that I have already put in motion right. rather than introducing tons of new stuff. Um, and uh, and so so that that was that was a very much uh, in the moment thing where I had a pitch. I thought I knew what I was doing with the trilogy, and then I realized it's way too big. Yeah, that's not working the way I want it to. Um, and um, and and then totally wrote something different. Uh, but then the ideas <laughs> that I had for all that ended up becoming, you know, the the following trilogy.
0: Well, you've got all these ideas; they've got to go somewhere. The great thing about fantasy is that readers are conditioned um to to want series uh you know not all genres uh, are like that you know thriller writers uh standalones are are definitely the uh kind of the norm for that genre but when you're talking fantasy uh people expect there to be a book two book three and then you know maybe a trilogy of trilogies and you know all of that so that that definitely helps i would think
1: yeah yeah well and it's it, this is a weird thing because you see fans argue about this constantly of, yeah um, you know, I'm so sick of series I really want I want standalones I want to be able to eat something you know read something like a in bite-sized kind of I don't right. want to have to have a, a, a an eight course meal. I want to just have a, a you know a sandwich <laughs> yeah um and it's funny because you see those people argue but the truth is is that fans, a, as a whole, they adore yeah. those big worlds once. Right. And, and this works because for both authors and fans, it works very well because, because once you as an author have spent huge amounts of time developing a world in that first book, you've done the, you've done all of this world building in your own head, you know, in your notes, you've created this, uh, this kind of vast and deep, um, you know, system of, of economics and traditions and, you know, countries and history and all this stuff. Once you've done that, you don't want to only do one book oftentimes, you know, some authors do, that's fine. Um, But oftentimes you say, oh, I've put all this work in, I really want to do more in it. And, and you're lucky as an author, because most readers, once they've put the work into learning all of this stuff, they want to stick with it. Right. Um, And I've found that to be the case. And 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 I am that type of person once once both as a reader and a writer, um, I I want to stick around in that world uh, and and spend more time in it. You know, I've my next book is is out next week uh, as of recording, and it's a whole new universe and I still, you know, when people come to me and say, oh, well, I wanted more Powder Mage, you know, I tell them, okay, I was burned out on Powder Mage, I'm moving on, I've got a new contract, I'm doing more stuff. But I never say I'm not going to go back to Powder right. Mage. Because right. Because it's a world that I still love, and maybe someday I'll look at it and say, oh, I really want to write something new there. Um, yeah. You know, maybe I won't, but yeah. – but the chances are pretty good that I'll say to myself someday, yeah, let's do, you know, even a standalone, you know, let's yeah. do something, a new adventure of some kind.
0: Well, and, and even though a series is is very popular with readers and is successful, um, burnout is a very real thing. You, you get, you feel like you've, you know, I've told all the stories I can tell in this world right now. It, it's a well-developed world. It it still has so much potential, but I need to take a vacation to another world for for a little while um what what was that feeling like for you when when did you realize okay I I need to step away from Powder Mage for a little bit and then when did this this new um idea start uh start working on you and did you feel like you were cheating on Power Mage a little bit when you started thinking about the new series
1: uh, yeah, I mean you do get that kind <laughs> of uh you know, I'm daydreaming about something new right.
0: and you're like, "Oh, I'm
1: still under contract." You, I, I felt more like I was cheating on my public my publisher, my editor <laughs> um because I was like because I I think I was I think I was writing book what I call book 6. It's this the third book in the second trilogy of Powder Mage. Um and in my head it's book 6. Uh but I was working on book 6 and I I had um I was in this weird position where I had kind of written the second trilogy. Uh, I I knew that I wanted to either write it as three books or five books. And then my editor left. Um, and so I was kind of orphaned as an author. This is a thing that happens pretty frequently. Yeah. Um, my editor went to a different company and and so uh, and and the editor I was assigned, she was very competent, she was very good at what she did, but I wasn't one of her acquisitions. Um, and and so so it was a it's this weird thing that happens with authors where I suddenly realized, okay, my my maybe writing five books in this series, that's not gonna happen. Yeah. Um, I'm just. I, you know, with the complications of having my editor leave, that, that kind of, uh, that accentuated my burnout of the world. And, and I just said, okay, I'm going to wrap up all these storylines in book three, I'm going to start working on something new. Um, and, uh, and so yeah, and so I, once I had made that conscious decision, it, it kind of my, uh, just for fun, I kind of had You know, evenings, you know, driving home at one o'clock in the morning from game night was my time to uh, to think and to um, have these uh, these little daydreams about what I'll do next. Um, And I didn't I don't think I wrote anything down for quite a long time until I was well done with Powder Mage. Um, But I definitely started thinking about
0: it. So the new series is called Glass Immortals, and book one is In the Shadow of Lightning. Um, very provocative titles, both for the series and for the new book. Um, what is going on, and and uh, you know, how? W- what are the differences that we can expect from from this new series as opposed to the Powder Mage? Is it a completely different world? Is there any bleed over at all?
1: Uh, no bleed over at all. Um, okay. There's bleed over in theme. Uh, You know, I, I, I didn't want to change things so much that readers that my existing readers didn't recognize what I was doing. Sure. Um, It is still a flintlock fantasy. Um, The, the military aspect is still very much there. Okay. One of our points of view is still a soldier. Um, And, uh, and another point of view is a a commander, um, an off and on commander. (laughs) Um, And, uh, and so, and I, I spent quite a lot more time in this book on the political intrigue okay. and and the the interconnectedness of the world. Um, so uh, Glass Immortals takes place in this world in which magic is industrialized. Um, it is There is a type of sand, a special type of sand that is mined. And once it's mined, it is refined by these glass engineers that I call siliciers um, into... Um, sorry my cat is on my <laughs> desk knocking things off right now he clearly <laughs> wants to be shown his food um, so it's so these silicers they refine the the cinder sand into something called god glass and it's these little baubles um, that you you hold you put in piercings um, and depending on what uh, what the um, what went in to the, the imperfections in the cinder sand, you know, the, the, the little bits of, you know, whatever kind of, um, uh, like, mercury or um, uh, or magnesium or whatever, depending on that, it changes what the god glass does. And god glass accentuates qualities of a person. So, forged glass is one of the types of god glass, and it accentuates... Um sorry. <laughs> uh Forge Glass accentuates strength and speed. Um it hardens the body, it makes you faster, stronger. Um and it's something that's used by soldiers, it's used by teamsters, um, it's used by anyone who needs extra strength for something, um, including kind of the lowest rungs of society. Um, wit glass is another one that one accentuates your mental capacity. Um, it makes you think faster. It makes you uh, um, able to kind of uh, calculate much better. Um, and um, and that's used by politicians. It's used by commanders, strategists. Um, and so you have all these different ones. The idea was basically that there is an infinite variety of God glasses. And you know, in book one, we meet think 10 different ones um that are the most common in society uh and um and so so god glass is the magic system and it's it's not just the magic system it's the economic system that the entire world is built on um and and so we meet at the beginning our our crux character as i described before the character that everything revolves around, is a young man named demir grappo who is a child prodigy who failed um, he, uh, he fails in the prologue. He fails to a heartbreaking extent. Um, and it ge- and he has a mental breakdown and he leaves, um, he leaves the capital. He leaves a life of privilege. Um, and then the book starts out in chapter one, uh, with him finding out that his mother has been murdered and that the the cinder sand that has been mined and that runs this entire kind of God glass economic system is running out. It's almost mined out. It's like, if we suddenly found out that we're pretty much out of oil. Um, and, and so he has these dual problems that force him out of his self exile. And he has to come home. He has to take his place as the head of this tiny little guild family. Um, and try to figure out how to keep society together and also take revenge. <laughs> and uh, And that's the driving force of this this novel and of the trilogy. The,
0: those, um uh, the years where you were thinking about this series, was it the magic system that you were thinking about and, and how you could develop that? Or was it the, the, um, society built around this magic system and the economy that comes out of that? What, what was the, that instigating, uh, factor for you?
1: Um, it was uh, all of the above, you know, I tend to think about multiple facets at a time. Um, and, um, I was I was listening a lot to the revolutions podcast. Um, I was uh, very interested. You know, I'm I'm I will always be very interested in the 1800s of our own world and the way that society changed so much over the course of such a small amount of time, um, both politically, technologically, um, uh, socially, and uh, and so I, I kind of, I was juggling all of these different ideas and trying to distill them down from these grand things into something that a reader could actually comprehend and that I could put into words. Uh, and um, and so, yeah, I was developing, you know, once once I figured out the god glass and what I was going to do with that, then the world kind of started swirling together naturally and um, You know, I I, like I said, I love kind of history and I love I love taking aspects of different parts of history. I I describe um, this world is it's almost um, it it is the British Empire at its height in, you know, kind of that early 1800s, Um, the British Empire at its height. If it was run by kind of the thuggish Roman Republic families. Um, like Julius oh, wow. Caesar came from, right. uh, and I, I liked this idea of a grand modernized fantasy world, but the politics are stuck in this very uh, almost mafia esque sort of big families that are clinging to power and constantly squabbling and, um, and I you know, I take Demir, the our our main character, and put him as a minor guild family patriarch. um and, uh, but someone who, when he was younger, everyone knew him because he was a genius. He was a child prodigy. And his mother w- was uh, a political reformer who every everyone knew and respected. And Demir was basically her. I, I actually kind of did the same thing. You know, you, you rip yourself off a lot when you're an author. <laughs> I did a lot of the same thing with Demir and his mother that I did with Taniel and Tomas in Powder Mage, which is taking kind of a, almost a celebrity person um, as the older member of the family and then having their child become, through both their own skill and their 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 parents' kind of... Um, you know, machinations yeah. become a celebrity in their own right, uh, in their field. And, uh, and Demir is very much that Demir is Demir is someone who uh, at the beginning of the book, after the prologue is haunted by his own kind of childhood genius. And, uh, and I, I really liked exploring that idea of, of what if you take someone who, who was going to be a great man of history and you have them fail partway into their quest um, and then see how years later, you know, a decade later, yeah. how that has affected them. What kind of a person comes out of that?
0: That's fantastic. I cannot wait to dig into it. Um, we are recording this on June 14th and a week from today, the book comes out, right? Yes so excited um brian do you have uh, a plan for where this series is going um obviously you you do but did, is it going to be as big a world as powder mage was you, like what are your future plans for this series
1: i mean at the moment it is a uh it's a it, it's a, just a trilogy that's what the contract is that i have um i don't just know just a trilogy just a trilogy (laughs) yeah just a
0: trilogy (laughs) yeah uh
1: i don't know where it will go from there um in terms of you know scope of the world i think it's probably bigger than powder mage um you know i like i mentioned before you know promise of blood was a lot of me throwing shit at the wall to see what stuck yeah um i didn't do a lot of pre-prepared world building for promise of blood i kind of did it on the fly um with uh glass Immortals and shadow of lightning i i i I did a lot more prep. Um, I put way more work into kind of the uh, developing the universe than I did with um, Powder Mage. And I hope it shows. Um, I hope that it kind of comes across. And so i, I think I think it's a bigger world um with bigger, kind of grander that, that that's tough to say, you know, uh, but uh, bigger things going on. Um, more depth to what's happening and, uh, and who knows, maybe it'll turn into a bigger series. Maybe it'll only be a trilogy, you know, as a, as a writer, you kind of have to juggle this, the creative impulses and the ideas, the million ideas that you have in your head with, you know what your publisher wants you know if the book flops then it's it's going to be a trilogy at best (laughs) uh you know but if they come back and ask me for more i I certainly it's a world that i have invested a lot into and i really Mm -hmm. love and uh and i would love to play with it for you know the next six or eight years or whatever but we'll see
0: i love it in the shadow of lightning glass immortals book one will be available everywhere June 21st. Go pre-order it on Amazon now or go to your local bookstore. Let them know that, that you're looking for the book as soon as it releases. Support local books. Um, however you grab it, uh, go get it. Uh, I'm assuming hardcover, Kindle edition, and audiobook on release day?
1: Yes. Um, a little bit complicated. Uh, if, if you have a lot of British fans that that watch, the hardcover's not out until the end of July, Okay. Uh, but ebook, audiobook is available. Um, I sell signed hardcovers from my website. Um, that's available. Um, but yeah, everything in US and I believe Canada is all out next week, um, and uh, and the, the and the digital stuff is accessible. I think pretty much worldwide in English territories uh, next week. So,
0: and you've got a fantastic website as you mentioned, where you can learn all about the series, learn about you, and uh, and you've got a podcast of your own that you do which is phenomenal. I love it. Um, tell people where they can find all that stuff.
1: Uh, yeah. So my podcast is page break with Brian, Brian McClellan. Um, and it is uh, me having casual conversations with other creative <laughs> professionals. Um, I've got, I, I've been trying to do more than just authors. It's uh, mostly authors, but I get some actors, I get agents, I get YouTubers, nice. um, uh, a variety of creative people that I just talk about, the challenges of being a creative professional in the modern world, and um, and uh, it's it's kind of fun. We we meander, uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's meant to be a casual, fun you know, sit down and relax with a couple of authors or a couple of creative pros, and uh, and so that's Page Break with Brian McClellan. It's it's anywhere on the podcast apps that you look for, or go to my website BrianMcClellan.com,
0: and you'll find it on there excellent brian it has been so much fun chatting thank you so much for taking time to come on the show
1: oh thanks for having me on it was a pleasure